Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Hot Springs Village, Arkansas, high atop the Highway 7 Ridge Line from TSPN. That's the Survival Podcast Network headquarters, a.k.a. the Ant Hill, where we teach you to prepare for the winters of life, just like the ant did in the story of the ant and the grasshopper. Uh, today is Friday. It's Friday. It's Friday, March 9th, 2012. And that's great because for a lot of us, that means it's the end of a week. Generally, I don't really look at a weekend much different than a week. This week has been a brutal week. If you guys follow my business podcast at jackspirgo.com and you know about our forum getting hacked over there, then you know that's part of it. But there was a lot of other stuff. I'm glad for this week to be over. And I'll tell you what I've got. Sitting out in my uh, front office right now is a huge box. And in it is a ton of trees from Rain Tree Nursery. And I'm going to go give myself some end-of-the-week therapy today and tomorrow by planting tons Tons of trees on my property, and I bet you feel a lot better. That might give you some ideas of what you can do this coming weekend for some, let's call it, individual personalized therapy if you've had a rough week. I might have a little nip or two of Captain Morgan private stock or maybe a good single malt scotch over the weekend as well. Uh, I know this is not how I usually open the show, but uh, it was a rough week. And uh, you guys are my friends, and I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that before we take our first call today about how how I'm doing certain things because I view this audience as my friends uh, and my community. But before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is the Berkey Guy. Now, Berkey Water Filtration Systems are some of the best out there. I'm not even going to say much about the product today because I have a question about the product in one of the calls. I'm just going to tell you this. You can get a Berkey water filtration system from about a bazillion different places. So why to go to Jeff Gleason? Why go to the Berkey guy? Well, if it's not good enough that he's the Berkey guy, right? If that's not good enough, it's because he has been part of this community for three years now. Total number of complaints about Jeff and his operation, zero. Total involvement with our community, a thousand percent. He is part of this community. He answers people's questions. He's on the forum. He's on the blog. He takes care of you guys. That's why he's a great sponsor. That's why if you need a Berkey water filtration system, you go to Directive 21, you get it from Jeff. You're going to get the best price, the best service you're going to get anywhere, and you're going to be dealing with a member of the community. Consider it a new way to look at buying local. Part of buying local is buying, you know, just out your door if you can. And, you know, that's great. But we also have now these virtual communities like TSP. Let's keep the business in the community when we can. Jeff is a great place to do that. Next up today, ShelfReliance.com. Innovators in food storage technology allowing you to easily eat what you store and store what you eat with their innovative food storage solutions that allow you to easily rotate your food simply by placing your new cans on the top rack and pulling the cans as you use them from the bottom rack. They're absolutely awesome. They also have the Thrive brand of long-term storage food. Check that out. Some of the best-tasting long-term storage food out there. Next, I want to remind you, you can connect with me on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. Uh, all of those links are on the main site. Sometimes I put a lot of content out. Sometimes I don't. depends on how the week's going. 
but many weeks I put out a lot of content uh, via those uh, channels that do, does not make it on the show. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the, uh, the uh, Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You support the show at about $0.20 cents an episode. You get $100 worth of free ebooks. You get discounts to 32 different vendors. I'm working on more of them for you right now as we speak. So check out the Member Support Brigade. Consider joining Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, Active Duty, and Prior Service. Uh, email me before you join and I will uh, send you a special discount code to thank you for your national service. All right, with that, uh, I want to get into the show, but before I do, I need to talk to you about something. Today, of course, is a listener call show like we do on most Fridays. That's where you pick up your phone and you mash the numbers 866-65-THINK, or you touchpad them, I guess is a better way to think about it today. Um, and then you uh, leave me a message in two minutes or less, and you say, hey, this is what I think, or this is what I want to hear you comment on, or this is my question, and then I answer it. And we tried something last week. We won't be doing this week because I didn't get a chance to screen the calls till this morning uh, with the way the week went, but we talked about having a council of experts. And last week we had Stephen Harris and Tim Glantz uh, both answer a listener question, and it was a home run. I think everybody enjoyed it. I think it were great answers, and I think that I picked two questions where I knew I could give you an answer, but the people that I knew and trusted that were experts in the area could give you a better one. And I think it's a great idea to continue that and have one or two or maybe three a week, uh, on weekly uh, call-in shows where a member of our what we're going to call our panel of experts uh, calls in and gives me an answer. But I wanted to talk to you about who's going to be made up on that panel of experts. I've gotten a lot of suggestions for people to be added to that panel, and these are people that I've never heard of. And I'm sure they're great people, and I'm sure they're smart people, but when it comes to something like this, let me be clear, not a chance in hell. Not a chance in hell that I would take somebody from outside the community and make them part of this panel where I'm saying specifically, you can trust these people. I won't do it. I wouldn't do it with some of the people that have been on the show but have made no attempt whatsoever to be part of the community. Uh, as big a name, just to be very clear, to be as big a name and as much as I admire Joel Salatin, I wouldn't ask him to do it. And the reason is simple. He came on the show. He did the show. I'm grateful for it. He went away. Uh, never heard a peep from the guy again. He never commented in the, uh, in the, sub, in the, uh, in the episode. Uh, after the show, when people were commenting and telling him how much they appreciated, he didn't even come back and say, guys, appreciate you guys having me on. So he is a member of the larger communities, but, but he's not a member of our community. right? So he's a member of that larger community in that space, and he's one of my heroes. So I'm not putting him down. I'm just saying he's not part of this group. People that are in this group will be people that have probably been on the show, been on the forum, been on the blog, understand you guys, understand what you guys want out of life, care about you the way that I do, and are willing to do this because they believe in doing it as a service. Sure, it gives them greater exposure, and that's a great thing for them because they get to come on the show once a week, or probably for most of them it'll end up being once a month, because I'll try to randomly uh, sort this out over a group of different people to make sure everybody gets some exposure. And, you know, we're at 35,000 listeners now. We're actually climbing from that number. We'll probably be 50,000 by the end of this year, based on my forecast. Uh, I see no reason within a year or two why we can't be reaching 100,000 people. But I don't want people to do this because, oh, great, I get to reach a bunch of people. I want people to do this because they're mission-driven, And they give a shit about the survival podcast community. So when you guys send me somebody I've never heard of, hey, send them to the guest thing. Let's get them on as a guest. And let's see if they become active in our community in some way. At least engage with the audience. You know, look at Shillelagh. I had Shillelagh on the other day. 
And uh, she gave us a great interview about her backyard homestead. She's been on the, on the blog every freaking day since her episode answering your posts and encouraging you and giving you other resources. See, that's, a, that's somebody who's engaging at a higher level. When it comes to my expert panel, what they know is important, but I'll tell you what's more important, how much they give a shit about you guys. If they don't give a shit as much as me, they don't get on. That's why Tim Glantz and Steve Harris get on. That's why I've asked Paul Wheaton, and he's accepted, and he's going to join. So some of your some of your permaculture questions of the future will be answered by Paul Wheaton. If you don't care about the people, and you don't, and you can't, it doesn't mean you're uncaring. But if you don't know the people, you can't care about them. If you don't know them, you can't care. If they don't know you, they don't get on. Just wanted you guys to understand that, and I'm not ignoring your requests. I'm just not following up on them because the people have yet to qualify themselves to uh, to be endorsed by me. Is someone that you can trust. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take your first call. Hey, Jack, this is Ivan from California. Just wanted to share a quick little story about how people put themselves together into a society even when the worst happens. And this actually happened to a relative of my girlfriend back when the Soviet Union was still around. Uh, basically, back in those days, the communists kind of created this perception that anybody who was well-off or had a property was an enemy of the people and needed to have their property taken away and to be put in jail. So they took a bunch of these people, along with a bunch of regular criminals, and uh, trained them out to Siberia. They would keep going until the train couldn't go any farther because of the snow. They would make them get off and then turn the train around and head back. So these people right away started building shelters because it was the middle of winter. Um, about half of them died the first winter. But the ones that survived started to build a town, build a little community. And they built houses. They started forming themselves into uh, a little culture and they formed such a legitimate little town that years later when government officials were traveling by those same train tracks through the summer they saw that town and they said this town isn't on any map why is it here we should put a train station here so the train can stop and so basically these people that were left for dead out in the middle of siberia in the winter had organized themselves into a real town so that kind of reinforces what you say on your show all the time that people rebuild themselves no matter what happens Thanks for the show, man. Appreciate it. Bye. It's interesting, and I believe it's always happened, and that's why I think people think I'm overly optimistic when I say whatever happens, society will rebuild itself. And people say, no, Jack, did we ever have a real, total, complete shit hit the fan, we'll be back to the dark ages. Folks, the genie's out of that bottle. It, it really is. It's it's. There's a lot of things that I think we can learn uh, from the, let's call it the little house on the prairie era, about homesteading and doing things in a different way and being more sustainable and having redundancies and having a plan and growing our own food and working with local markets. But the, the age of communications and the Internet and electricity and cars is not going away. It'll change. It'll transform. There's a massive shift coming, and it's going to kick a lot of people so hard in the ass that aren't prepared uh, and I'm not saying that we'll never have a complete breakdown of some area for some period of time. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that no matter how far things degrade, as long as there's anybody left, they'll start putting things back together. And the very knowledge of what's possible that now exists will result in people moving forward. I actually think that in a breakdown, technology in the rebuilding stage would advance faster than it's ever advanced in recent history. 
Because right now, technology is being held back by government interference and regulation. Uh, and simple technologies, simple technologies like how we can grow more food in our own community and build our own local economies. The only thing, let me that one thing right there, the only thing screwing that up is government. That's If government would just say, you know what, anything of a certain size in a, in a community or whatever, as, as long as it's not actually creating a, an actual danger, like a, a, like a bull running wild in the streets, that's an actual danger. Anything short of that, go nuts with it. We're getting out of that business. We're not going to spend your money on it. You guys go do it and knock it out. You would see that one industry explode all over the country. It's happening everywhere in the world where the governments there have enough freaking brains to stay out of the way of it. And I believe that in a, in, a, in a failed, I would tell you, I bet you those towns were some, once they, once they got through the misery, uh, by the time the politicians found them because they wrote a train out there and said, hey, we need to put a train stop in here, they were probably some of the best places you could have lived in in the Soviet Union. They were probably some of the freest, most uninterfered with, happiest people that you could have found, even with the miserable cold winters. I'm sure that the first people that got there weren't real happy, but I'm sure that by the time they established it, now here's what I think is funny, because here's what I, Ivan doesn't say this, but I almost know this is the case. I guarantee you somewhere along the line, when they started building train stations at these towns, they went in there and started screwing things up, and then the politicians that built the train stations told everybody how great it was that they you know, brought these train stations and, and got involved in how they've helped these communities, which would have probably been better off if the train just kept passing by and they'd been left to themselves to figure out how to sort themselves out. It's a perfect example of a situation where you had a group of people that were actual criminals and a group of people that were just people that were successful and criminalized for being successful, two very different uh, dichotomies, put together in an environment And they were able to figure things out, sort things out, and actually probably do better than the rest of their countrymen. I guarantee you that life there for the average person was probably better than the Iron Curtain days uh, in Moscow. Uh, in fact, I, from my relationship with Valery Asanov, uh, I know that to be true. I know that a lot of his family that's still in the Soviet Union now lives out there, and they're very happy where they're at. They could go back home. They don't want to. It's interesting. It's interesting that society really does rebuild itself. Ivan, thank you for that call. It's great when you tell somebody something and then they go, no. And then somebody goes, well, actually, I saw it. And that's exactly the way it plays itself out. And I'm sure, again, that it wasn't all you know, roses and, and, and sunshine and ponytails in the beginning. And like Ivan said, like half the people didn't make it the first year. But uh, those that did, the tough ones, the smart ones, the ones willing to work, Uh, they built a better society for themselves and for their offspring. My, my question is, how many generations does it take before the offspring don't appreciate the sacrifices of the previous generation? And, and my guess, it's about three. It's about three. The first generation will really respect it because they'll be part of it. The second generation will have it much better, uh, but see it and have the wisdom of their grandparents with them as they grow up. The third generation will be sheltered and protected by the first two and will end up not having any appreciation whatsoever for what they have. Look at the last three generations in this country and you'll see what I mean. The, the hope I have is things like the Internet and it's all this technology that people think is all just going to go away that isn't. Uh, it's allowing young people to reconnect and realize that they've been lied to 
And some of them seem like they do appreciate it and they wish they still had that same opportunity and they're trying to create it for themselves. Uh, that's encouraging. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Sean in Connecticut. And uh, first, I want to just say thanks for everything you do. Really enjoy your show. And uh, just a comment that uh, last night I was at my town's uh, budget meeting. I live in a moderately affluent area in Connecticut, and uh, an interesting demographic or ec economic trend that was discussed was that we're seeing an increase in the number of, uh, of children who are moving back in with their parents and putting kids into the school system. They talked about how they used to be able to predict the trend of enrollment in the schools based on new construction, and that that, that old way of doing it is kind of going out the door as we're seeing more and more kids move back home with mom and dad and put the kids into school. So I just thought that was an interesting demographic trend that I wanted to share with you. So thanks for everything you do, Jack. Have a good day. Um, here's what I find interesting about this. Uh, one of my favorite and worst books of all time, and I, I say that because I've read it twice. I really enjoyed it, but yet it was written in a way that I considered like a train wreck. And the characters talked in ways that people just don't talk. And, it, you know, it was like it was good and bad at the same time. It was Patriots the Coming Collapse by James Wesley Rawls. And I recommend the book, even though I'm saying it's a terribly written good book. I mean, that's the best way I could put it. Um, but one of the things he talked about in it is how as soon as everything broke down, people started doubling up. And that's something that preppers have always said for a long time. When the shit is the fan, people will have to double up. Well, see, this is what I this is what I keep trying to get across to people. The shit is actively hitting the fan right now. It's currently happening. It's it's all around you and society has lulled you into complacency. That's what this is. That's a school district going, "Holy crap." And here's the problem for the school districts. Let me let me kind of really break this down. So in a school district, a lot of the people paying the bills don't reap any of the direct benefits. You can say they reap indirect benefits by having children that are educated to become part of the community and are not out in the streets terrorizing people or what have you. So you could say by having that, everybody reaps benefits, but they don't reap direct benefits. And what I mean is... When my son was in school, even though I didn't like a lot of things about the school system, he did get an education. So I reaped a direct benefit from my property taxes that totaled close to $4,000 a year. So I paid $4,000, but my son had a school to go to, and the majority of my tax money, even with the Robin Hood philosophy in Texas, did go to my local school, at least that school tax portion of my property taxes. So I derived a direct benefit. But the way the schools are able to spend asinine amounts per student per year, like $10,000, dollars $14,000, more than it costs to go to many colleges... And, and have high failure rates on top of this is because many of the people fitting the bill do not reap a direct benefit. So when my son was finished with school and went on and got a job and went to college and was paying his own bills and I was still paying the same amount in property taxes, I was no longer reaping a direct benefit. You could say, well, his education was paid for by the, yeah, but I'm still paying the bill. 
And if I had stayed there and let them keep raising my property tax, I would pay more and more and more with no direct benefit. The system, as socialist as it is, therefore depends on some portion of the people in the community paying who do not reap the direct benefit. That's how it works. That's why it's unevenly assigned. It's unapportioned. That's part of what makes it, in my view, completely unconstitutional under the U.S. Constitution because it's an unapportioned tax. You can say the states have the right to do that. Well, maybe. Well, maybe. Um, but it still just it girds me the wrong way, the, the way the system is set up, with the restrictions that are inherently placed on it. In other words, you can take my tax money outside of my district, but I can't take my kid out of my district. If I'm, if I, you know, so I don't want to go down that, that path, but so I just, so I've painted that picture for you because now I want you to understand the problem. So, so, so Susie and Joe, I get out of college and they move in with, uh, with Susie's dad and mom who have a really big house. They have like a six bedroom house, uh, and they have a really good life and all the rest of their kids are gone. So there's plenty of room. So they move in and they have two kids and they can, and they have that multi-generational home, which actually can be a really positive thing as long as everybody has their own space and their own room. New construction is even starting to be built more and more with this in mind. I've just read some stories on that. So they're building houses more along the opposite where they build the house and it's designed for grandma to come live. Versus, you know, the other way around. But they're still building these bigger houses with these divided areas. So everybody kind of has, a, you know, their own, like, the two different generations have, like, their own little kitchen at least. So so grandma has her own kitchen. Or the kids that just moved in have their own kitchen area. So they don't step on each other. So they can get away and still be together. So that's happening. But for the school district, now, if 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 Susie and Joe have two kids that are going to school, they've moved into the community. They've brought their kids They're deriving the direct benefit, and even if they're contributing to the rent, which they probably are, they're probably not freeloaders, they're still only taxing one home, a home that had run its cycle and wasn't supposed to be being being part of the, the draw without the input anymore. But now, if that happens over and over and over again, it starts to degrade the revenues to the school. And they get more kids without any more money. On top of this, property values have been devalued. And they keep trying to raise taxes, but citizens are effectively fighting it. You know, I, I had them raise my taxes, and I went down and said, oh, no. And they said, Mr. Spirico, we believe that your home is worth $165,000. And I said, let me tell you something. If you could find somebody to give me $165,000 for this home, they just bought a house. Here's the comparables. Here's how long shit's been on the market. My house is worth about $130,000. You're not raising my taxes. I'm not paying my taxes if you do this to me. I And I filed a formal uh, rebuttal to it, and I won. And that's happening, too. So the schools, they can't raise the taxes. The new construction's not there. And the number of children are increasing by this double-up concept. And it's part of, I keep saying, the suburbs are going to go into a massive decline. Maybe not all of them, but many of them. And, and what will happen is the places that can do the best job will attract the doubling up, and then the places that don't will vacate, and they'll go into decay. And it's not even, it's going to happen, it's happening. Folks, quit waiting for the shit to hit the fan. Start adapting to the fact that it's flying by your head right now. Duck, maneuver, adapt, and overcome, because we're there. In many ways, we're there. Many of the things that people said would happen when the crash came are happening now. That means people are already feeling it. Just because you might be personally insulated for a time doesn't mean it's not going on. Let's take another call. 
Hi, Jack. This is Kenny from Santa Clarita, California. I, won't, I wanted to get your thoughts on filtered water. I bought a uh, recently just a regular filtered water from uh, a, f- a filter from Walmart for 20 bucks. Um, and I was just interested about your take on water from the tap or just uh, just plain old uh, just filtered water in general or maybe uh, Walmart isn't the best place to get it, maybe the Berkey filter water. But uh, yeah, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on just tap water and stuff like that. I uh, love the show and thanks for what you do. Bye. Yeah, first of all, let me tell you that you're not saving money by buying like Brita filters or something like that. They don't do as good a job as something like the Berkey, and I believe Berkey is the best bang for your buck, but there are other good quality filters out there. But these small pictured filters and things like that, they don't have the lasting duration. They don't do anywhere near as much, and by the time you look at the cost per gallon over the life of the system, you pay three, four, five, sometimes six times as much than a Berkey system, which has an initial somewhat high cost, a couple hundred bucks, but has a very low lifetime cost. And I buy stuff based on lifetime cost. So Berkey is where I would go. And what I like about Berkey is, especially if you live in a place where you don't have to worry about um, fluoride, which is something I'm going to get to in a second, and you don't use the fluoride uh, and arsenic lower filters then you leave 100% of the mineral content in the water, even though you take out everything that could possibly harm you. And, and I like that, and that's what I really like about what we're able to do now. So we have a Berkey at the house for drinking water, but we're on a well. There's no fluoride. We've had the water tested, and that means that we leave all that wonderful mineral content there going into our bodies, but we're safeguarding ourselves. Because even though the water is perfectly fine, you never know when something could go wrong. Something could cause an infection or cause a problem in the water. You could get you know, a cleptosporidium issue or something like that. I think it's almost impossible, based on the depth of my well and the location of my well, that it would ever occur. But it's still a nice extra thing to have. And the water tastes even better than it already does. It tastes so much better than the tap. Completely different story when we were in Arlington. I I saw it as complete life-saving self-defense. I really did. Uh, I went out and I bought about 20 of the stainless steel little water bottles, you know, like the, the screw tops on from the store. And I... Got a Berkey system, and I got four filters for it, uh, and a low, the, 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 the two upper blacks and the two lowers for the f- uh, fluoride and the arsenic issues, and I filtered every drop of water we drank, and I had a standing rule in the home that was you got it, you got to give before you can take. And what I meant by that is if you wanted water out of the Berkey filter, you took an empty bottle that had come out of the refrigerator, you filled it from the tap, you dumped it in the upper unit, and then you could take from the lower unit. And I said it so many times that my wife and son were ready to, to pull their hair out, but I said it until I didn't have to say it anymore. Because once we did that, once we came to an agreement, this is our, we always had clean, fresh water on hand. And I believe that our health began to improve right away. I'm telling you that I personally believe, based on everything I've read, everyone I've talked to, and I don't believe in this mass conspiracy theory that it's designed to kill you or placid you or whatever. I believe it's just complete bullshit that they put fluoride in our water. It's a complete misinterpretation of the fact. It's completely wrong, and I consider it criminal that our government medicates us without our consent, because that's what they're doing. And they medicate us with a toxin. Fluoride is a toxin. Period. And the fluoride that they use, that they put in our water, comes from industrial waste. And I've seen video evidence 
that it leaves behind residues, and the people in the water treatment plants look at it and go, and they say, what is that? And they go, I don't know. The bag that it comes in says on it, deadly poison. If you go get, right now, a tube of toothpaste, tube of to fluoride toothpaste, and you read the back of it, you will see that it says if, if you or a child ingests more than the recommended amount for a single brushing, call poison control immediately. It is freaking poison. That's what fluoride is. It is poison. It is in small amounts in the water system where it doesn't have like a drop you over and kill you thing. And I'm not saying that, but it's a toxin going into your body for no good reason. And those that say it improves dental health, fine. If you want fluoride to improve your dental health, brush your teeth with fluoride toothpaste, use a very small amount, rinse well, and rinse often while brushing. Topically applied, yes, fluoride can help remineralize teeth. It does have a dental benefit used topically. But to drink it for the benefit of your teeth makes as much sense as going out and bottling a bottle of freaking copper tone lotion and drinking that and saying that that will now protect you from suntan or sun sunburn. That's what you're doing. So I think everybody should have water filtration if you are on city grid water with fluoride and chlorine as self-defense. Chlorine is also a toxin. But I understand it is necessary for municipal water. It is the only thing that keeps us from having massive outbreaks uh, in the water system. So it's a necessary evil that you can easily remove. That's how I see chlorine. Fluoride is a poison and a medication being given to people against their will by their government. It should be criminalized and it should be immediately outlawed and immediately removed. Until they do so, it's incumbent upon you to do it for yourself. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Carney Princess from the forum. Just listening to episode 843, uh, listener feedback show. And uh, somebody sent you an article about uh, some basic uh, per square foot pricing of uh, uh, various things you can grow, basil, cabbage, broccoli, and whatnot. And uh, my thought on why it was so underpriced, as you were saying, is that perhaps he was talking about gross profit as opposed to uh, sale value of it, um, you know, cost of goods and that kind of thing. I mean, that's uh, more sales than service side, but uh, I think you get what I'm saying. Anyway, thanks for the show. Bye. Interesting thought, but I don't think so. I'm looking at the article right now that I had mentioned. I'll link to it again in today's show notes. And it was a list of things like the value of planting something per square foot uh, with the, the highest yielding plant being cilantro based on how much you could grow in a season in one square foot being $21. Uh, and for what organic cilantro sells for, I would agree, you know, arugula was about 20 bucks. And where I disagreed were some things like said broccoli could only grow you 80 cents a square foot. And I said, you know, I can grow, a, I could probably use one square foot to grow two broccoli plants in a single season because I can grow a winter and a spring uh, or a late fall and a spring plant using a square foot, maybe two different square feet to rotate, but it's still per square foot per year. And uh, a good head of organic broccoli is going to cost me a buck fifty, two bucks. And when I cut that head, I get regrowth equivalent, so I get four heads. Uh, so what, what we got the caller saying is, well, you know, yeah, but maybe they meant like if you had to sell it. And you, you kind of start to come down. I still think that would even be under uh, with profit. But, you know, because then you'd look at your cost of seeds and labor and everything. But here's the, 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 uh, the paragraph. 
One important that, that makes me think I was right anyway. One important thing to remember is you still have to eat the vegetables. Throwing $20 worth of arugula or cilantro into the compost bin is not exactly a sound investment. You can also get higher yields by growing vertically, but don't forget those tall plants produce a larger shadow, so you still need some extra ground space to support these alternate growing methods. So since... Um, they, uh, since this article specifically says you have to eat the vegetables, I'm not thinking this is a market grower. And I think it would be interesting for people. I know a lot of people, uh, have started to do things like count the, uh, the amount of pounds that they produce a year. And that's one of the way they judge things in, in their garden. How many pounds of vegetables do we produce? Um, but there's a big difference between, you know, an overgrown five pound zucchini that we really don't like because it got too big, uh, and producing, you know, a one pound beautiful tomato and what their value is. I think it would be interesting for people to start maybe calculating every time they take something out of their garden. If I went to the grocery store and bought this, what would I have paid for it if I bought locally produced, high quality, I don't even want to say if we call it organically grown, but non-commercially grown, non-pesticided, non-herbicided, non-genetically modified, and, and organics about the only way to verify that for for the time being, uh, and see how much your garden produces a year. I think you would be blown away. I think the average person with four to six beds is probably producing several thousand dollars minimum of food, and some are producing ten, fifteen thousand dollars. In food, and you might say, well, but I could go out and buy all that stuff for 2500 bucks. But you can't buy the quality if you bought the quality. And that's the thing is that it's not just saving you money. It allows you to eat a better quality for less money. I think that's really important to consider with your gardening planning. Anyway, let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jack from uh, Ardmore, Oklahoma. Um, I'm looking for a, uh, like a, a small pistol, maybe something that that you would uh, suggest uh, guy carrying when he's out jogging, doing some running. Um, I'm not too worried about people or anything for protection for that. Uh, just something maybe for dogs, for snakes. Um, I've got a small 380, but I don't know if I'm quite a good enough shot to you know, hit a copperhead or a, a rattlesnake. I've got a Taurus Judge. To me, that's just a little heavy, I think, to be you know, running up and down you know, three or four miles up and down hills with. But... Uh, Just curious, maybe if you have any suggestions, Jack. Thanks a lot. Appreciate the show. I'm going to answer this for you two different ways. I'm going to actually give you a solution after I tell you don't do it. Um, you might not like my initial answer. Leave the freaking snakes alone. You don't have to shoot a snake. Trust me, if you're in danger of a snake, you can hit it with a .380. Uh, if, it's, if it's far enough away that you can't hit it, It's not hurting you. Leave it alone. This this propensity and this need that we're going to go shoot snakes is just don't do you know don't freaking do it. Leave the damn thing alone. And most of the venomous snakes that people kill are non venomous anyway. I just had a guy wrote up a big blog post, sent it to me, and said, "Look," and he wrote this whole thing about how his neighbor had killed a six foot rattler, and then his wife found this poisonous snake. By the way, there's no poisonous snakes; there's only venomous snakes. So the venomous snake, this venomous rattlesnake, was under this thing, and he pinned it down with a shovel and smashed it with a hammer, and he put a picture of it, it was a freaking corn snake, right? And all you have to do is just leave it alone. Snakes do not come after you; they can't jump; they don't fly through the air. Leave the snakes alone. Feral dogs or something like that, or coyotes, or any kind of wildlife, or possibly people, your 380 is fine. If I was going to, uh, I don't know what you're carrying, but if I was going to recommend something for lightweight, kind of the jogger in mind, I'd look to Caltech, the P11, P32, P3A, 
Uh, you know, these are the 380 the, and the 9mm and the 32 versions. Very compact, very lightweight. They shoot uh, very accurately for what they are. They're short-range weapons. Even stepping up to, like, Keltex PF9, Uh, there are some other good guns for this Beretta makes some stuff and, and, and what have you, but for these, for lightweight and value for the money, Keltec's hard to beat with that line of guns. And, uh, everybody that I've ever had shoot one is actually surprised by how well they shoot, how, uh, how instinctively they point and what have you. Okay. None of those guns are going to do well for you with any kind of like a snake shot, like a dust shot type loading on them. Uh, if you actually wanted to shoot snakes. So I understand that there are certain places and certain times that certain people would be better off eliminating a venomous snake than leaving it be or doing anything else. Uh, personally, I have the training. I would remove the damn thing if it was in a place where it was really that dangerous. Most of the time, they're not in places where that dangerous. So most of the time, they're not venomous snakes in the first place. All right? I'm, I'm going on a rant here. But probably the best thing you could get would be like one of the Smith & Wesson hammerless uh, light frame 357 revolvers, short, you know, two-inch barrel, uh, five shots, the smaller, more compact profile. That would probably carry very well for you, and then you could get the 357 Magnum 38 Special Style dust shot, and that would give you a little shot shell. And at, at you know, actual defense ranges from a snake, it would be quite effective. So, and it would also be quite effective against something that maybe you wanted to scare away but not necessarily kill, like uh, a coyote or something like that. As far as I'm concerned, shoot the damn thing and kill it. But uh, at further distances, let's say you get something like that out to distances of like 10 to 12 yards, you're not going to get a lot of penetration on a thick-skinned animal. What you're going to get is a deterrent. And, uh, you know, maybe the next round is a slug. But I wouldn't do that. I'm, I'm saying if you absolutely have to do this, that's the best tool for the job that I can think of. But I would just make it your standard practice to leave the freaking snake alone. If you have time to draw a gun and shoot a snake, you're not in danger of being bitten by the snake. You're placing yourself possibly in danger, and you're giving yourself an excuse to kill an animal that's not bothering you. Leave it alone. That's the best answer. 95% or better every year of snake bite victims in the United States that are bit by venomous snakes, where they are wild animals, they're not people that keep hot snakes, are young adult males bit on the hand and forearm and fingers. What does that tell you? Stupid people, stupid places, stupid things. We avoid those to avoid getting killed or hurt. That's what's going on. Stupid people doing stupid things in stupid places, trying to kill a snake or trying to catch a snake and putting their hands on it. And if you don't do that, then you're not likely to be bit. You're more likely to die of a bee sting in this country than a snake bite. This ain't India. We don't have king cobras uh, that are very aggressive animals that will actually get territorial. Uh, there are places where there are some very, you know, aggressive, dangerous snakes. If you're if you're tooling along in the swamps of Florida, water moccasins can be a concern. But I grew up there, guys. I grew up in the swamps. I was never bit. I just paid attention to what I was doing. And, uh, you know, I mean, that's really what it comes down to with snakes. Pay attention, leave them alone, and you'll be much better off. For a concealed carry, for a lightweight gun, uh, again, the Keltec P-Series, uh, the, the 9, the 11, the 32, and 3AT are great guns. I got to shoot those out at SHOT Show. Uh, I was 
pretty impressed with uh, with their quality. I would put them up there with pointability and just instinctiveness and 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 ergonomics and uh, feel with the Walther uh, at at almost half the price. So uh, check those out if you're looking for something like that. Let's take another call. Hey Jack, I got a real quick question. My name is Eric. I live in the Lumberton, North Carolina area. And I just stopped at the co-op, it's called Southern States here, and thinking that it was, it was built around the, uh, the, the people that want a homestead. I go in looking for some tobacco seeds to grow my own uh, tobacco so I can dry it out and smoke it. Go in there, they say i got to buy uh, 9,500 seeds at a time. Is it just me, or wasn't the co-op built for the small farmer? I've been thinking 9,500 seeds is about... Oh, 20 acres or so. And they said uh, they didn't know where to get a small amount. And I go in there looking for Virginia gold tobacco. And all they have is they're all, the names are all numbers. And they said they are genetically modified. So I guess I'm mistaken on that. But maybe if you touch on your show, uh, you might be able to link to where a good place to buy some tobacco seed for growing and smoking. I appreciate your time. Thanks. Well, I'm giving my honest disclaimer that I think that smoking cigarettes is really, really bad for you and you shouldn't do it. And then I'm going to finish it with, but if you're going to, avoid the stint taxes and grow your own. This is a great country to grow tobacco in, so that's fine if you want to do it. My recommendation for where to get your seeds would be Victory Seeds. They are supporter of the Member Support Brigade. If you're an MSB member, you'll get 10% off. Uh, and they sm sell small quality quantities of tobacco seed, including things like Havana tobacco for cigar making. Uh, and like Kelly Burley, uh, they have, they also have, uh, TN86 Burley, Virginia Brightleaf. Those are all good, uh, as far as to my knowledge, um, the cigarette tobaccos. They have a Mohawk, which I think is probably a decent pipe tobacco. A One Sucker, I think would be a decent piping tobacco, a pipe tobacco. Uh, Greenwood, which I think is a good multi-purpose. So they have a lot of different options. They sell them in quantities where it's about three bucks a pack. And again, If you are a member of the support brigade with that and any other order you'd placed with them, uh, you would get uh, 10% off. They say their packets have about 100 tobacco seeds. I, re I mentioned them because they're part of the community. They support the MSB, and I know they're a great supplier. But if you put tobacco seed into Google, you'll find tremendous varieties that are available, just about anything you could want to grow, uh, whether it's pipe tobacco or what have you. One more thing about Victory, though, they do have some information on cultivation, harvest, and curing that tells you not just, hey, we'll sell you seeds, but what to do with your seeds, how to take care of it, how to uh, you know, process it, and what have you. So check them out. Again, Victory Seeds, uh, they're at victoryseeds.com, and I will put a link to their tobacco seed page in today's show notes. That was an easy one. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is uh, Jason from uh, central New York up in cow country. Appreciate all that you do. Got a question for you regarding mylar bu uh, plastic buckets and uh, mylar lining. I saw a post on Odds and Sods and Survival Blog, and the post was that not all number two plastic buckets are created equal. So uh, just because it's marked number two doesn't mean it's necessarily food grade. And I have uh, stored a lot of my stored food in those buckets lined with mylar bags. And if I have inadvertently used... Uh, non-food grade buckets, uh, even though they are lined with mylar, does the mylar protect the food from any uh, possible leaching contaminants? Uh, would appreciate your uh, your wisdom and info on this. 
and I look forward to hearing from you. Bye-bye. Well, I guess Rawls re-ran that as part of Odds and Saws because the source of that was a survivalistblog.net, uh, which is, of course, M.D. Creekmore's. Here's what he actually says. Uh, buckets marked with number two are made of HDPE, high-density polyethylene plastic, and in most cases are safe for food storage, but not all. If you are sure, if you're not sure, contact the manufacturer and ask. Sometimes you can get these buckets for free from local restaurants or delis, but you never know until you ask. So there you go. So that was the whole thing. That was the whole thing that's created this concern. First of all, I would tell you that if your food is stored in, in, in mylar inside of the bucket, I really don't care what the bucket's made out of. Um, the number two buckets have a tendency to have greater longevity and less likely to break down under UV light and become brittle, so I think they're a better storage container. I really don't give a damn if it's food grade or not if it's in mylar. I, it just, I don't care. Um, I think that sometimes we get a little bit too crazy with some of this stuff. I really do. Uh, you know, also understanding you're storing this for long-term survival food. Uh, I, frankly, if I was in a survival situation and somebody had a freaking Home Depot bucket full of corn, I'd grind the corn and eat the damn corn. I mean, just, just to put it in perspective, I understand that we don't want to do it on purpose. Um, but here's the deal. If, if it's marked, uh, NSF, FDA, or USDA approved, then you know it's food grade. But I also want you to think about something when we obsess about this USDA thing. Um, USDA, the little stamp, means that it meets the standards the government has set that are more about industry than safety. And I don't really give a damn if something's USDA or not, or FDA or not. I care what's it made out of in, and is it something I want to store my food in. Now, I've made it my standard practice that everything that I store in buckets is also stored in, in, in mylar, uh, or at least vacuum sealed vacuum bags. And usually what I do is I vacuum seal individual uh, components and then I put them into a large mylar sleeve and then I seal the large, large mylar sleeve and then that has O2 absorbers in it. And I ain't worried one bit about that. I wouldn't care if it was sitting in a galvanized uh, steel garbage can once it's in that kind of packaging. Um, you, you get you think about the fact that it's similar to the way that things like MREs are packaged. Do you think when the military moves their uh, cases of MREs around, they worry about whether or not the back of the truck they're putting it into is food grade? I mean, could there be some? Possibly. But you're, here's the thing. You're probably inhaling about 20,000 toxins right now. I know what I said about fluoride earlier. What we want to do when it comes to living healthy lives is avoid large uh, inputs of toxins. But if we start worrying about every possible source of toxin, You might as well just move into a clean room because that's the only way you're going to eliminate them. I believe your body will actually be weaker for it long term. Uh, so that's my thoughts on it, and, and that's the source that I found on it was, was Creekmore. And I would say I'll put a link to that, and if you want to know more uh, about this and if there's any further inputs, there's about 24 comments, but get over to MD's blog, survivalistblog.net. And uh, give him a, a comment, ask him a question. I'm sure he would be willing to give you more information. There may be more information down there in the comments already. I just didn't read them because, honestly, uh, my answer is I am not that concerned about it. I'm just not. Uh, stick to the number two buckets, of course. But once you've done that, you've done the best you can. And when you're buying new buckets, you know you can make sure they're food grade if it's that important to you. But come on, guys. When something's sealed in Mylar... Uh, it, it's pretty daggone safe. Let's take another call. Hey, my name is Bob in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm calling because I was upset by your caller, your listener feedback from Monday. 
I understand voting for Ron Paul in the in the uh, primary, but when you reach the general election, I I disagree that writing in Ron Paul Ron Paul is the right answer. When you look at what happens to our country if you take a choice that's not the choice of the moment, you're effectively not voting. With right now, with our country being under attack, we have Obama doing everything he can possibly do as fast as he can possibly do it. I'm concerned with how fast our country's declining and that we may not be able to come out of this. If you look at it, we are really almost the last free country here. If you listen to Fernando, Fernando he's trying to get here. You look at Greece, they're falling. If they have any place to go, they think this is where they're coming. I think you can't do that. I think you have to recognize that our Constitution is what's holding us together, and they're trying to tear us apart from that, and you need to reconsider that position. I believe that Ron Paul is not going to be the nominee. If he were, I'd vote for him. I'd vote for anything other than Obama at this point. Please think about that and say that, and not just make an ultimatum. If it's Mitt Romney, what if it's Ron Paul or Rand Paul? I think that's a, a distinct possibility. Um, I've been distressed and bothered about what your, about your comment, so if you could address it, I sure would appreciate it. And I'm a fan of the show. This is the first time I've called in, and I've been listening since the early 500s. Thank you. Well, your first problem is that you're distressed and concerned about the way another citizen of your republic chooses to vote. This is how a republic works. I personally choose to stand on principle from this day forward. Now, if you want to make a case to me as to why Mitt Romney or a Newt Gingrich would be a better candidate than Barack Obama, other than telling me how bad Obama is, if you can specifically tell me how Mitt Romney is going to defend our Constitution or put our republic back on course or anywhere in any place at any time where he has a distinctive difference from the ass clown running my country now, then maybe that would be a choice I could make. But you can't. The guy's a clone. They're all clones. The problem with, with what you're saying is you are still of the belief that it matters who we elect for president out of the mainstream. You still believe there's a difference, in spite of the fact that we've had 80 years of proof that there ain't no difference. We've had one president, one president, since 1900, that didn't completely shit-can this country. And he was not mainstream. His name was Dwight Eisenhower. One. Every other president has done the same damn thing Deeper in debt, erosion of the Constitution. George Bush, deeper in debt, erosion of the Constitution. Ronald freaking Reagan, deeper in debt, erosion of the Constitution. The originator of the automotive bailout, Ronald freaking Reagan with Chrysler. Yeah, it was the second time those guys got bailed out. At least, at least when Reagan did it, Chrysler actually paid the money back. And you know what Reagan told Iacocca when they came to pay the money back? Nobody pays the money back, Lee. We don't even really know how to take the money back. That's in Lee Iacocca's book. If you believe this shit, you vote any way you want. But don't tell me how to vote. Don't tell me I'm wasting my vote. And don't expect me for one minute to participate any further in the mass delusion that there's a difference between George Bush and Barack Obama. Tell me one. 
Help me one. George Bush was pro-Second Amendment. Really? Really? The guy that said, well, if we had the votes, I would I would sign the assault weapon ban, but they're not sending it to me, so we, we don't have the votes for it, so it's going to expire. Yeah, that's great. Okay, yeah. The guy with TARP, right? Come on. TARP there and then stimulus after that. with I mean, come on. Get a clue. And, and here's the reality. If you want to vote against your principles, keep doing it. And you'll keep getting the same shit over and over again. There are people such as myself who have said, no more, no more, no more. That if a candidate is in direct opposition to my belief system, and in almost every single instance, Mitt Romney is, Newt Gingrich is, and Rick Santorum is, I will not vote for them. And you can say I'm effectively not voting. You don't get to make that decision for me. You don't get to decide what is and what is not a valid vote. One man, one vote. If you don't get that, you don't get the Constitution that you're saying you want to defend. A republic isn't you telling somebody else how you think they should think. It's respect for the individual right. And there isn't one person in mainstream politics today that gives a shit about individual rights, including Mitt Romney, including Newt Gingrich, and including Rick Santorum. And any belief that any of you guys have that it will be any different with any of them is a delusion. And when it probably, you know, if it happens, then you can tell me how right I am three years from now. I'll tell you what, I will bet you, I will bet you money, anyone that wants it, if Mitt Romney wins, we still have the health care system that was put in place, modified, tweaked, and changed. It will not be repealed. Even with a Republican majority and both the House and Senate and a presidential candidate, Romney, who said I will repeal it because by the time the full nature of what was done under Obamacare is realized by the American people, people are just starting to feel it now, The people in mass are going to tell, turn to the government and beg them for more. That's what's going to happen. So if you want to vote for any of those ass clowns, feel free to, and I'll defend your right to do it to the death, and I'll defend your right to say that's what you think sh that you, other people should do to the death, but you do not tell me, you do not tell me that standing on my principles is wasting my vote. And I will tell anyone, whether they like to hear it or not, When you vote against your principles, that's a wasted vote. And until this country pulls its collective head out of its ass and stops believing the class warfare, you know, dichotomy lie that we've been fed and stop buying into the bullshit about a wasted vote, all the votes are wasted. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. Uh, my name's Mike. I'm a fairly new listener to the uh, Survival Podcast and definitely uh, like what you do here. I heard someone that actually uh, struck a note with me in issue 849 when you were talking about uh, photographing the police. I actually had an incident like this uh, several years ago in Massachusetts where they're uh, looking at the possibility of making it illegal to photograph the police, which is pretty scary. But uh, I saw six police officers beating a guy that might have weighed, you know, 120 pounds with billy clubs. And I took a couple pictures, uh, went about my business, and completely out of nowhere, a police officer came from behind, uh, grabbed me, ran me over to a police car, yelling at me to stop resisting arrest, uh, and proceeded to handcuff me. 
uh, the whole time, you know, I just complied with everything the officer was saying. You know, I'm not a criminal. And uh, for the most part, I'm pro-police, but, you know, they do work for us. Um, and they're accountable for what they do, you know, while we're while they're on our paycheck. So, anyways, uh, just wanted to share that with you and uh, see what your thoughts were. Thanks, Jack. Well, I played this because a couple law enforcement officers listened to the show had emailed me last week because I had talked about this subject and I had talked about the fact that I would never speak to a police officer if I was in any way uh, in, 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 in feeling that I might, in, in any possibility of one-tenth of one percent of one degree being a suspect without counsel because cops lie and are trained to lie. And it was called a rant on law enforcement. I thought I did not rant. I thought I was very equitable on both sides. Uh, of the equation. And I had one guy say, well, I was taught never to lie, and my trainer said we have to earn it. And maybe you were, and that's great. And then you shouldn't be pissed off by the fact that I say that cops are trained to lie. Because you damn well know they are. And then things like this happen. Somebody taking pictures of an arrest, whether it's being improperly or improperly, is assaulted, grabbed and shoved, and then the cop says the only thing they can say so that they can create a charge, stop resisting arrest. And the guy could just sit there and put his hands behind his back and say, go ahead, handcuff me. I'll go wherever you want. And they're still going to say it. And it happens. And I'm not saying all of you do it. I'm saying all of you probably know that it's happened. And if you don't know, go to YouTube and watch it. And accept the fact that it happens within your own ranks. And then you're the police. Police yourselves. When you see somebody doing this, don't let it stand. Be the officers and say, leave that guy the fuck alone. All right? I halfway sense to myself, but that's what, that's what actually needs to be said. Occasionally I'll drop a word like that, because that's what needs to be said in that situation. Hey, the guy's taking pictures. Do your job right, and you don't have anything to worry about. You're public servants. You're public servants. You serve the public in a public capacity, in a public place. If you're in a private place where you've been sent to by command or been hired out as, as, as private security... And the person that owns that says, in this private facility, there's no photography. That's fine. You're out on a public street doing a public job with public money. And your, and your fellow citizen that you're assigned to protect takes your picture or videos you and you don't like it. Tough shit. And let's fix the problem. Let's fix the problem, officers. Right? Those of you that are right now getting ready to text me or email me or whatever because you're mad, you're ready to pull your phone out and say, oh, I listen to you all the time and I don't need to hear this, well, maybe you do, even if you don't do it. And maybe you've never seen it. Maybe your department is clean as a whistle. Maybe every officer you've ever worked with is just like you. Great. Be proud of it. Be proud of it and keep doing your job. And, and every time you come into contact with a citizen that has this attitude, defuse the attitude. Hey, you want, I'll, hey. You can hand me a donut, you can take a picture of me eating a donut. Use some humor. Use some of the training you get on things like that to diffuse these situations. Because people are expecting it because your fellow ass clowns have done it. And again, I don't want to hear about it doesn't happen. Because I've seen far too much evidence of it happening. There's far too many documented cases of it happening. And I'm going to say it again. The public has a right to record the public actions of public servants and any law that says they don't is an unconstitutional law and likely will be challenged successfully as such. It's so blatant, it's so obvious, and it doesn't surprise me for a second that Massachusetts would lead the pack, probably along with Chicago, 
and maybe D.C. and trying to do this stuff. I've seen it. I watched video of the guys up in Keene follow a judge, ask him legitimate questions on video because they were too stupid to figure out how to erase the video and cover up what they did. And I watched that judge lie to a bailiff and say that he was being threatened, tell the guy that was asking the questions it was a federal felony to threaten a judge and have the guy arrested. But then you watch the video and you see what really happened. This stuff, again, I'm saying it I, because I want the... I wouldn't give you guys, I wouldn't give law enforcement officers a discount to the member support brigade if I didn't support you. But police yourselves. You shouldn't need an internal affairs department. You should have an external affairs. Every single one of you takes an oath. And that oath is not to your chief. It's an oath to do the job. It's an oath to the, probably the constitution of your state, the charter of your city, to uphold the law, to not violate the law. And when somebody takes, I'm going to say this very, very clear so that you all understand me, because I know a lot of you guys do listen. When someone is taking a photograph or a video of you performing your job and you grab that person and you assault that person and you arrest that person, you are not upholding the law. You are, in fact, actively breaking the law by violating the rights of your fellow citizens. And if you are a law enforcement officer witnessing another law enforcement officer do that, and you do not intervene and you do not disfuse the situation, then you are in what I would consider a dereliction of your duty to your oath and your badge and your department and your citizens that you choose to defend. And you either believe that and you are a great cop and I am glad you're out there looking after us or you don't and you shouldn't have your job. Any law enforcement officer willing to rough up and arrest a person for taking photographs in a public location should be fired and probably should be facing criminal charges because just because you wear a badge and a uniform doesn't give you a right to harm another individual, to steal from another individual, or kidnap, which is what you're doing when you arrest somebody without cause. It's effectively kidnapping. You don't get to tell people what to do just because you wear a badge and a uniform. You get authority to enforce the law and protect your fellow citizens because your fellow citizens have placed trust in you. Most of you are worthy of that trust. Those of you who are not are a disgrace to your jobs. And those of you who are not a disgrace to your jobs, it is up to you. You are the only ones that can really do something about the rest of them. Do your duty. Don't bitch at me. Go find an officer somewhere not doing their job right. You won't have to look that hard. Even if it's one in 20, if it's one in 50, you can find one. Stand up for what's right. Be a freaking oath keeper. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is CDHM22 from uh, the forum. Uh, I know you stand on credit cards. Um, we keep ours for online purchases. Um, but uh, the other day in the mail, I got an offer for 0% interest for until August of uh, 2013. And uh, I got to looking at uh, potentially... Uh, taking my student loans, which I got about ten thousand five hundred dollars in student loans, paying that off with the zero uh, percent interest checks, and uh, that comes with like a four percent fee. But that versus the uh, 
the interest I would pay on the student loans in the same amount of time. I've got 6.8% interest rate on my student loans. Uh, looked like it would come out, I'd save about $100 um, <clears throat> by, you know, just getting it paid off before August of next year, which comes out to about a $750 a month payment, which I can swing. But uh, let me know your thoughts. Uh, appreciate what you do. Uh, love the show and, you know, it changed my life drastically because of it. Uh, keep up the good work, Nick. Well, I expect to create about 35,000 drop jaws today. Uh, maybe not today, maybe over the next week as everybody gets caught up and, and listens to this episode. Uh, I'm going to tell this caller that I actually think it makes sense to move your debt over to a credit card. And I know you're going to go, Jack, you always say credit cards are evil and stupid and all. And I, I believe that. I, I absolutely do. I, I think when you're sitting here using credit cards for airline miles and stuff like that, you're just deluding yourselves. This morning, I put, I put uh, diesel fuel in my truck. I could have used a cashback credit card and got a penny back uh, on a dollar or something like that. Uh, I ended up getting four cents a gallon off by paying cash. So I think I'm either equal or better right there. Now, why would I tell this guy then to do this? Because the only belief that I have when you exchange one debt for another is do you go to uh, a better quality of debt? In other words, is the debt you're moving, because you already have the debt, right? So if you said, Jack, I want to go to school and I want to finance it with a credit card, I would say, don't do that, right? I'd say, don't do that. I would say, figure out how to go to school and pay as you go and take as little debt as possible. And no, don't use a credit card to go to school. But you already did it. You already have the debt. It already exists. All we're doing is changing the form. And we're changing from student loan debt to commercial debt. Let me tell you why I would do it. Hopefully, you'll have this paid off by August. Hopefully, it'll save you some money. I don't know that it will with a 4% transaction fee. Even with 6% interest versus zero interest, you're only paying another five months, four months? Let's see, got April, May, June, July, August, five months. So it's not effectively 6% because it's 6% per year. So I don't know if it'll save you any money, but what do we always prepare around here for? Shit to go wrong, right? Stuff goes wrong. Stuff happens. And uh, that's that's a big issue. Uh, and it's, it's, it's bad when stuff goes wrong, okay? So <laughs> with... With your situation, you could lose your job in the next couple of months. I hope you don't and, and what have you, but let's look at the difference between credit card debt and student loan debt if at any point in your walk you should end up at the cliff that we call bankruptcy. And you've done everything you can to be ethical, and you've done everything you can to try to make right, but things have just gone so wrong that you use the legal protection of bankruptcy. With credit card debt, your debt can be dissolved as part of the bankruptcy or reduced as part of the bankruptcy uh, or what have you. Your student loan debt will follow you for the rest of your life. Uh, you'll be basically humanly foreclosed upon, have your wages garnished. Uh, the American taxpayers will pay for your default, and then you'll have to pay for it. And effectively, the same people that get, you, get the loan to you in the first place will be paid twice on it, and it will haunt you for the rest of your life. If you, if you default on credit card debt, you default on credit card debt. I'm not saying a default. I'm saying that sometimes a default is inevitable, and I'm saying with a student loan debt, it's not an option. So if you convert, if you have a, if you said I can convert half of it over, I don't know if I'd feel the same way. But if you can completely eliminate your student loan debt, now here you have to look at the long-term interest rate of the credit card, 
And it might behoove you to immediately start seeking out another zero interest transfer type balance transfer situation uh, as you get close to the end of the zero interest term. And it might behoove you to see if there's a better option. Some of them might do zero interest for 12 months or something like that. I don't know. But if you've got this well thought out and you understand why you're doing what you're doing and the fine print doesn't say that your interest rate's going to go to 29% uh, the day, then, yeah, it might make sense in this instance. So Jack Spierko just told somebody it's okay to use a credit card. But I told somebody it's okay to use a credit card under a very specific suggestion for an existing debt and to convert a debt that is inescapable into a debt that could be escapable. Without the plan to escape, right, And, and it's what I want you to understand. This is not about, you know, ethics or anything. There, it, it would be wrong of you to walk away from your home and not pay your mortgage unless you can't pay your mortgage and you've tried to pay it back and you've tried to work with the bank and you've done everything you can and you have nothing left to do and it's all you have left. So you leave. Just like if your house was on fire, you'd run out of it. Right? You wouldn't sit in the house and burn down. Uh, you wouldn't go down with the ship, so to speak, uh, out of some false sense of duty. Uh, as a captain of the ship, you get everybody off the ship. If everybody's off the ship, you don't go down with it. You get off, too. But it's your duty to get everybody off first. Uh, when Sully Sullenberger put the plane down uh, as a captain of a plane in the river, he got everybody off the plane, and he got off, too. And, and that that's the right way to deal with a debt you can't deal with. You, know, you can't no longer deal with. You do everything you can, and then eventually you accept failure. Federal government won't allow it. So in this instance, you could convert a debt that's inescapable to a debt that in the worst scenario is escapable. So I would probably do it. I would probably definitely do it. You would discharge the federal component of your debt. You would go to a less regulated form of debt, a less, uh, you would actually move from the status of long-term indentured servant to short-term indentured servant is the way I would look at this. From, from, from slave to the state to indentured servant to the bank. And I don't like being an indentured servant to the bank, but it's better than being a slave to the state. Uh, with that, that's my answer on that one. Hopefully, I've actually shown that I can be flexible. I know I got on a box today and I ran it about two subjects, one on voting and one on law enforcement officers, but I hope it was well received. hope you understand that you can support something, believe in something, and stand up for it. And that doesn't mean that somebody else has to agree with you. And neither one of you have to be wrong. That's called a republic. And I hope you understand that you can support an organization and a group of people and still accept the fact that there's bad people in that group and those bad people need to be called out for what they are. You can find bad people in law enforcement. You can find bad people wearing the, the collar in the uh, Catholic Church as priests. There's been pedophiles there. It doesn't mean all priests are pedophiles. It doesn't mean all cops are bad guys. But the ones that are, I'll tell you what, citizens, pull the phones out, videotape it. Prove it. And officers, when it happens in front of you, you stand up. You police your own. It's as much your job as to worry about somebody committing a crime, as to worry about your fellow officers committing a crime. In fact, I'd say it's a higher duty. It's a higher duty to enforce within your own ranks. It's a higher duty because you've been trusted with authority that the average person doesn't have. And a violation of that trust is a disgrace. Don't, and it's not just it's not just if you violate it. Don't allow anybody to violate it in front of you. Do what you can. Speak up. That's your job to defend the helpless. And uh, sometimes that means you have to stand up against your own. Those of you that do that, I salute the hell out of you for it. And I thank you for your service. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another episode of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TV. 
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution.